Please welcome. Welcome to another episode of Unmet Need, hosted by serial founder, CEO, Jeff Smith. Your number one podcast for healthcare innovation. Jeff and his guests tackle the biggest problems in healthcare and share their experience building successful businesses in medical device, diagnostics, therapeutics, digital health, and so much more. This is Unmet Need, hosted by Jeff Smith. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. Today, our guest is Ariel Katz. He is the co-founder of H1. Ariel studied applied science and experimental psychology at Binghamton University. He went on to be a research assistant at Columbia University and did his honors thesis at Binghamton. In addition to co-founding H1, Ariel was also the co-founder and CEO of Research Connection, which was acquired in 2016. Ariel, I'm so glad you could be on the show. Thanks for being on Unmet Need. Excited to be here. Should be fun. Just to get started, you have a very impressive background. We started with Binghamton, where you went to college, but fill us in a little bit and put it on a timeline. Where did you grow up and what happened before Binghamton? I, I grew up in New York. I grew up in Manhattan. I spent my whole life, grew up in the Upper West Side, went to school in the Upper East Side at a Jewish private school, pretty insular circle my entire life. And then it's not on my background, but I went to the University of Pittsburgh for a year. You pit. After that, I went to Israel for a year, and I ended up at Binghamton. I got involved in academic research, thought I would pursue a PhD, which was a very great initiative. I, it was a bit slow for my taste, and so I decided to start a startup instead. Well, what was it like as a kid growing up in the Upper West Side? I mean, I'm from the suburbs, so that to me sounds like a lot of fun. When you're a kid, you don't know anything different. But now when I realize, like I was exposed to things and I had access to things that it's just hard to get access to if you're in the suburbs. Like I would have to, when I was 11 years old, I would take the subway, public transportation. 11 year olds growing up in the suburbs don't take public transportation uh, by themselves as like a small kid. And so it, it was actually a good experience in hindsight, getting exposed and having to grow up early and having to just like have street smarts early in life. So it was actually a good experience doing that. I didn't have a backyard and I missed that. But otherwise, it was a good experience getting that exposure at a young age. Now, were you running around exploring the city and the subway with any brothers or sisters or you're the only child? I had a couple sisters, one older, one younger. So I'm right in the middle. I would take the crosstown bus every single day with my younger sister to school. So I went to school in the Upper East Side, I lived in the Upper West Side. With my friends, we would go downtown and going downtown to like Soho was like going to like an amusement park. It was all different parts of the city and it was all a big city and it was all exciting at that time. As you live in it for longer, it starts to become smaller, but just like going to different parts of the city with the friends, the Lower West Side, uh, East Village, West Village, Soho, that was a crazy time, crazy fun. It's all new. Yeah, I mean, so you're 11 years old. Was there like a talk your parents had with you and said, all right, Ariel, <laughs> you're now allowed to go out and run amok in the city. Were there certain guidelines or did they just turn you loose? There were guidelines. I didn't listen to any of them though. It said like, don't go to certain neighborhoods. Don't go to certain streets. Don't walk across the park at night. Don't go into Central Park at night. You'll get murdered. And I'm like, I don't, I'm, I'm fine. And so I didn't listen to any of the guidelines that they said, but they gave some. I always think the role of technology in our childhoods is interesting. So like, for instance, when I was 11 years old, I'd have been 1990. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone until senior year in college. You look like a really young guy. Did you have a mobile when you were running around at 11? No, I wish. Yeah. I a cell phone in high school. No, I didn't have a cell phone. It was better that way though, because- Well, especially if, you're, if you don't want your parents to know what you're up to. <laughs> Not that you're doing anything wrong. Yeah, but like I would just like play basketball in Central Park till like 7 p.m. And now if you do that and you're and I'd if I had a kid and I, they had a phone, I would just call them like crazy. I'd call their friends. I'd text them to come home. 
at that time there's more freedom it was like a freer experience of life where time felt differently and connectedness to people and things felt differently it felt maybe it's because i was younger but it also it just felt like a freer more natural experience throughout the day but without a phone at that age now it's different so when you're playing basketball in new york were you a knicks fan at this point <laughs> i was a knicks fan they were bad at the time they weren't good since the ewing days but i was a knicks fan and I like the, the they were New Jersey Nets at the time. They like Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin, those guys. They were pretty good back then. And so I always think it's funny, like high school kids, middle school kids, like I have four boys and then two of them are at that age where they're developing their persona. And it's like someone wants to be a, an athlete, a skater. Someone wants to be in music. If you had to put yourself in one of those buckets, what were you like at that age? Friends would make fun of me. It's in my middle school yearbook. I said, I'm going to run a hedge fund. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 13 years old, uh, ten, since I was like 10, I'm going to run a hedge fund. Which I might do one day, but uh, not today. So I've always thought it's a weird dream to have. You're a 10-year-old kid, I'm going to run a hedge fund one day. That's what my dream was. Was your mother in, in finance or your father? Another and none. Father was in garment industry. Mother was a consultant. But I So just, where'd like, you get this idea about hedge funds? I loved fantasy sports. Have you ever played fantasy sports? Oh, yeah like fantasy football. And I was like, I'm really good at it. I would always win the bracket. I was always win fantasy basketball. I'd always win all the base fantasy baseball. Fantasy baseball was pure numbers. Whip, ERA, batting average, OPS, all these things. And I was like, I'm really good with these numbers. I'm going to run a hedge fund. That's my thesis for why I should run a hedge fund. I guess it all worked out because you went on to have a career in data. So playing to your strengths. I actually never thought about that, to be honest. Really? Yeah, I didn't put two and two together. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, I was talking to a, a finance, a longtime finance executive, and the idea of the hedge fund is becoming less relevant with algorithms and computer trading. Everyone can kind of play the same game unless you have a unique position. So anyway, that's a different topic for another time. But I, I applying a lot of what you do with data to investing, there's a lot of interesting places to take that because I'll give you an example. In medical device, if you want to predict success, you can start with the obvious things, market size. You can make a judgment call on how much better the new thing is compared to the standard. But if you really want to get into the real data that's going to pick winners and losers, it comes down to CPT codes. And there's like a spread between what the facility who buys the product makes and what you, you can actually charge. And so the arbitrage opportunity is finding a code that has a lot of ceiling that happens to also coincide with a big unmet need market and then bringing a technology that's going to address it. I would love to some other time, maybe on a next show when I'm getting advice on this algorithm trading. That to me is where you can apply the hedge fund concept. You can hedge your computer model that's going to tell you what to invest in. I didn't know that at all about CPT codes and devices. Is that what they do? So you optimize on like unmet need around CPT codes that have like old technologies around it. You find technologies that could be used for it's, that CPT code. It's a slightly different way about approaching it. Usually is you have a great idea that's, a, that's addressing a problem and then it's what the investors do. As they go through diligence, they look at the reimbursement landscape and it's a quick way of saying, all right, well, the hospital makes $2,000 for the surgery. You're telling me this prototype cost $800 to make there's not going to be a whole lot of margin, even if you sell the hospital for $2,000 and they don't even make money. And so it, my approach is slightly different. You start with the codes, then you overlap that with unmet need. And then there's a few other layers to it that are important, some of the obvious ones and some less obvious. And then you say, can we develop a solution? Because we now we know all the parameters. 
fascinating. It's an interesting approach to think about. Like so different than software. Software, it's around product market fit. There's no codes. I wish there were codes because then you know user behaviors. But the game, you hire product people to figure out user behaviors and you bet on creating new behaviors and you bet on filling into behaviors. I wish there were codes in technology. That's like coding human behavior in real life. Cool concept. Because well, you know a lot of the incentives. So, you know, that's what's nice about the codes. So were you wearing Jordans? Like what kind of shoes did you hoop it up in? <laughs> no, my era was Iversons. I had the these black Iversons, which were the coolest shoes in the world. It was the Iverson Vince Carter days. Nice. Uh, when I was playing basketball. I think Vince Carter has like four more years until he retires. <laughs> He's like scored 100,000 points or something crazy. Yeah. So you mentioned you went to a school, a uh, high school that was fairly insular. Like, tell me about that, if you don't mind. I had 80 kids in my grade. Wow. I, st- I was in that same grade, K through 12. I, it's like a, um, a observant Jewish private prep school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan on Madison Avenue. It's like this like weird bubble of like wealthy Jewish families in, in Manhattan. And you think that that's the world because that's the only world that you're exposed to. And then you mm-hmm. like leave that bubble and you're like, this is not real life. Real life is different than just the Jewish bubble in Manhattan. Best experience ever. Most like watershed eye-opening experience to leave that bubble. But then realize there's a lot of benefits to the bubble. You develop, it's sort of like a fraternity. When you get hazed together, you experience shared experiences and shared memories and you're like never gonna leave those bonds and friendships like it's not hazing but it's like pseudo hazing going through this <laughs> and then coming out and realizing it's much bigger than this bubble now for the 80 kids in your class like k through 12 is that co-ed or is it all boys co-ed like, co-ed no, that's good yeah like 40 guys 40 girls are you to this day are you closer to your college friends I'm the type of person, if I like something or like someone, I'm, I'm with them forever. My best friends are since I was like six years old. That's great. So what was it like? You know, you're looking at colleges. How did you make that decision? I tried to go as far away as possible from New York, and I couldn't get that far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was really how, what I was optimizing for. I didn't, do good, I didn't do well in school. It's like I didn't have good grades. I didn't really care. I just didn't care. I had like other worries in life, which were weird worries at the age. I just had other worries in life. I didn't care about school. Uh, like what? I really cared a lot if LeBron James was better than Kobe. I cared more than doing better. I cared more about that argument than doing well on the history test. We had a guest on earlier, like you, very successful guy. He went into medicine and he was just describing, he's like, I was really curious about a lot of things, but I just wasn't that motivated to get AIDS and like memorize a phone book and recite it for a teacher. He's like, <laughs> it wasn't until maybe in his 20s where he's like, I turns out I like organic chemistry and the timing just worked. Thing. But like, what did your parents say when you, you didn't bring home straight A's? Did they mind? Parenting's hard, but they gave me the best tactic. They were like, if this is your best, we're happy with your C. If this is not your best, you shouldn't be happy with your C. And I was mm. like, no, it's not my best, but I don't care enough to change that. They always said, just put your best foot forward and then the rest, the rest will work itself out. And so I was getting C's until I like cared and I stopped getting C's. But I always thought like, if I put my best foot forward, or whatever, then it doesn't matter. Like the same way in companies. If I draw my best, like I'm killing myself to make something work, it doesn't work out, I don't really care. <laughs> I care, but like, I, what, do you, what else can I do in this life? I'm putting my best foot forward. It's like a lot of times as a kid, there's that one thing that we're really good at, and that becomes a big part, for me at least, my identity. And it's like, all right, well, whether it's grades, sports, music, you know, that's my thing. Was your thing fantasy sports? No, what was my thing? It 
ranged. I was always good with numbers. Like I was, I was weirdly good with numbers. And that was my thing for a while. It still is my thing, but I, I, now I could just use that to my advantage in business. But I was always right. weirdly good with numbers and really weirdly good with models. And you don't play with financial models at 14 or 16. But like I was pretty much building models without knowing what it was. Now I know what that is. I was always a numbers person. Um, that was always my thing. Well, so you get pretty far. How, how long of a drive is it from Binghamton to your house where you lived in Manhattan? About three hours. Three hours. That's actually perfect. <laughs> you, so you started your freshman year. You started at Pitt or then you went yeah. after? I went to Pitt and then I went to Israel for a year. So I got Pitt pretty far away. And then I went to Binghamton. I was there for a couple of years. I started to start at my senior year. Have you found that your faith has helped you a lot going through the journey of being an entrepreneur? The community has. It's all about the community, which sounds like, like a Scarface movie. It's all about the family. Uh, but right. it's all about the community because when you travel to anywhere, Vienna, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Paris, I could always find a friend. And that's like a big thing in life. And I didn't realize that growing up. But like knowing that you have a sense of community anywhere around the world and you have something to relate on, you have like a mutual language with that community, that's been the biggest benefits. Like faith interwoven into like community faith. It's been the biggest thing. You have something like that? You have like an equal, you have a language that you can just talk to people? I think in, in many ways, my community was sports. Played a sport that has grown a lot. It's lacrosse. And, but in the 90s and 2000s, it was still growing nationally. So as part of that, my hometown, I've had a lot of communities, not as broad and as influential as go to any city in the country and you're going to be connected to people. How did you get the idea to start a company your senior year in college? Like what was the problem you saw and how did it all come together? My problem. I wanted to pursue a PhD and I couldn't find a faculty member and there's no way to find one. It still doesn't really exist. There's no place. You have to go to each university website to find all the people who are studying or doing specific research projects. It's a pain. Like you can't click on like 400, 4,000 websites and click through each biology or psychology department page. There's no central source for all this information. It's like, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to build a marketplace where faculty post research opportunities for students and students apply to it. So I called up a friend and he was like, I'm in. And then we called up a couple other friends and they all joined. That's so cool. And did you know how to get incorporated and all that? Oh my God. You have no idea how many mistakes I made. It's like we change our corp like three different times. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea. I just faked it the whole time until like it works. And when it doesn't work, you get in trouble and then you fix it. <laughs> so I just kept learning and fixing on the job the entire time. So I started with a, started an LLC just because I thought <laughs> oh, that's what I should do. And then I switched it to S Corp. Then we had to switch it back to C Corp. Third time's a charm. That's what they teach you in business school. Switch corpse three times in the first year of business. I just faked it the whole time. Well, for the audience, Ariel, if you're starting a company and let's say you have aspirations to raise venture capital, what type of corporation should you start and why? I started Delaware C Corp. No there question. You go. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a couple of years to figure that one out. They started Delaware C Corps. Easy. They have a friendly shareholder and corporate bylaws and rules for corporations. Yeah, I remember getting the advice that most venture capital funds, when they raise money from limited partners, the management agreement that governs how they can invest and what they can invest into, most of those agreements with their limited partners mandate that it be a C Corp. I never did the LLC S Corp C Corp. That's <laughs> that's a great one, two, three shuffle. <laughs> Within a year. <laughs> it's worth noting for the audience though, if you're starting a business that can generate cash flow quickly or you want to self-fund it, 
there are advantages to the LLC model. Exactly. Yeah, there a are lot of, a lot of advantages. Yeah, I would do an LLC if it's a, if, you're, if you're not trying to raise capital, it's just your personal business. I have my own LLC besides for H1. And so you do start an LLC if you're trying to like live life off your business. Yeah, so you had the entrepreneurial dream. You graduate college, you start a business your senior year and you sold it pretty quickly. How did the transaction come together? So we raised about half a million bucks when we graduated. Then like three months after that, it was angel investors in the city, which was difficult. I had no network. It's like a 22 year old, 21 year old kid. I was just reaching out to every single person, cold reach out to hundreds and thousands of people and eventually some hit uh, there's always a distribution of who would hit so we raised some money grew the business pivoted once it's a good business pivot but it pivoted once and we at the peak we had over 117,000 students on a given month using our platform which is really cool right uh that was, like, that was the most users i've ever had in one of my products in a given month there's a ton of users, a million people a year um, great feeling it's like all these people are using this thing you figured you needed to build. I know, it was a crazy yeah. feeling. The thing is, almost none of them were American, which is interesting. At the time, this is like pre-China, US trade wars. This is like before everything was going down. A ton of Chinese students were coming to America for education. A ton of Korean students were coming to America for education. I could all remember back like five, six years ago, that was like the thing come to the U.S. for your uh, grad school. And so they were all using our platform to find graduate schools and graduate professors to work with. Did you ever test the pricing and see that, I mean, at that point, both economies were growing at staggering rates, particularly China, and you have all these wealthy parents that have relatively inelastic demand. Were they willing to pay anything? And would you just keep testing the pricing? So we sold the data back to the university, which again, I figured out a business models very quickly. You sell to people that are easier to sell to, not who you originally thought you should sell to. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and so we were so stubborn about selling to universities. The idea from H1 came from that where I was like, we don't need to sell to universities. We could sell to industry. We could sell to companies. We could sell to pharma, biotech, Microsoft, Apple. They have more money than small universities do. And so we didn't test the business model. Learned a lot of lessons in the first business, but did not test the business model like you suggested. That's such a great insight, Ariel. As entrepreneurs, you know, you get inspired by your experience and problems you see in the world. But once you have an idea, at least in my experience, of what you want to bring into the world and the problem you want to solve and where there's need, it's so important to know who is the buyer yeah, of this product. And I really want to hear more about H1 as we transition. It's very different to sell a product to 13-year-olds with no disposable income or Fortune 100 companies that if they have a need, they have the willingness and ability to pay. And I know. it's very different. Very different, very different go-to-market strategy, very different capital that you need to go after. It's very different. I didn't know any, I mean, I learned all this, had to learn all this on the job. It's good to have a startup that you could learn a lot of failures and learn really quickly from. I always tell people, if you want to start a startup, you start your startup, what are you waiting for? You're going to fail anyways, to at least fail on the thing that you want to fail at. And you, if you're good, then you'll learn really quickly and adapt. And like everyone fails, like Mark Zuckerberg failed in a lot of ways. He succeeded because he's smart and he adapted and he learned from his failures quickly. Just start it. That is the key, the adapting. In your case though, two or three years in, how did the transaction come together? Were you looking to sell the business or did someone just reach out? We were looking to sell. It came from a relationship which we were cultivating. I was cultivating for a year or so. We were talking about a partnership. This guy was looking to do something similar. It ended up just coming out 
pseudo naturally it start a lot of these things do it's like oh well, let's partner together as let's partner and then the partnership turns into something more serious and ends up and in this case end up being an acquisition when you've raised five hundred thousand dollars and you've got people using the product generating data you can sell back to the university you have a lot of flexibility on how you can exit where you as a founder your people that have equity incentive and the angel investors that took a big bet on you, you get a lot of flexibility on how you can exit and then of course if you take on an outside capital, you have the ability to really, you know, I love the, the metaphor of venture capital is rocket fuel, but you better have a rocket ship yeah, because no. if you're putting that rocket fuel into an economy car, it's very expensive and their expectations are returns. The structure that companies can contemplate and ultimately execute for a business that hasn't raised that much, it's really flexible. By the way, I love that analogy because most people don't get it. Like if you're an entrepreneur that's never raised money, the goal is not to raise money. The goal is to raise money when you could use the money. Otherwise, you're right. you're like you're paying a lot for that cash. It's a good segue. So, in the case of H1, you just announced recently a significant venture financing. Congratulations. Thank you. But I love what you just said, Ariel, because a lot of the press around entrepreneurship is celebrating closing of VC financing. So much has to do with, did you raise venture? Did you do a round? Did you get a seed round? And what I always love to hear about is companies, yeah, if they need to raise capital and they're willing to let other investors own a piece of the great thing that they're building, that works out perfectly because they figured out how they can apply capital to build a lot of value. I also love hearing about the stories of people that are bootstrapping companies with six, seven million in sales and two million in EBITDA. Like as a builder, like that's a pretty good business. In your case with H1, when you started it, so you have a co-founder. How many co-founders are you? It's myself and Ian. There's two of us. And was Ian your co-founder at Research Connection? I met Ian through a, mutual, a former salesman of mine at Research Connection. I was going to go to, after Research Connection sold, I was going to go to India at the time for much longer, ended up just going for about four months, which guess sounds like a long time. And this guy was like, oh, if you're going to India, you should meet my buddy Ian, he's a good guy. He's been to India a few times. Uh, so I met Ian at coffee. That's how it all started. When you guys got together and you're like, all right, we have the idea for H1, which I want to, I want to come back to. Do you already sort of know that this idea that you're working on, it has tons of scale potential? And were you building this thing to be able to take in the round that you just raised? Ian was running a $20 million business at the time. Big business. We just wanted to work together and stuff. So we started working on side projects and I came to him one day. I was like, I have this idea for H1. And it came from the research connection thing. And he's like, I'm in. <laughs> it's pretty funny. When we built it, like we knew it was going to be huge. We bootstrapped it. We were able to bootstrap it till we had a few million bucks in revenue, which is great. Because then when we did raise capital, we were able to use it like rocket fuel to really take off. And so in your case, when you approached Ian with the idea, what was it? Oh, what we're working on now. It's pretty similar. I always, I, and it was crazy. We looked back. I made a two-year financial plan. Remember, I was good in numbers. I was, I was pretty close. I was like within $100,000 of what we actually hit in terms of revenue. Oh. I was very often expenses. It was true on the revenue. I still have the deck. I created in 2016, 2017, whatever. And it was, it was very close on the numbers. I was very often the expenses, very close on the revenue. For the audience, give us the pitch. What is H1 and what's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, H1 is the world's only database of every doctor every doctor in the world, every healthcare professional. Currently, it solves a lot of problems, but currently we're focused on the industry side. So pharma, biotech, med device, hospitals, and health systems. A lot of the world probably uses LinkedIn Sales Navigator, but that doesn't exist about doctors. You can't go somewhere and find out for a given doctor all the work that they do, where they've worked before, who they work with, who's their network. 
and all that's solved with H1. The biggest difference is we collect the data ourselves. We have a global team of hundreds of people collecting and curating this information from public and private sources, buying the data, scraping the data, everything to pull it all together. So that's what we do. And we license access to the platform to hospitals, health systems, pharma, biotech, med device, med tech, et cetera. And so when you started putting together the model for the kinds of data sources that you want, you know, you're looking at what is out there. And it's amazing when you, whenever you search a doctor, some of the stuff that you get back from Google or the search engines, it's really incomplete. And it's been that way for so long. So when we met at the Rambam Foundation and you, know, you were a moderator and when we first connected and I was learning about your business, I was like, we need this. In the case of spine surgery, there's you know, about 9,000 orthopedic and neurosurgeons and we've been at it for over a decade. And so we've been building a database of spine surgeons through a CRM. And, but you're always trying to like layer in different types of data. And then of course the challenge of, keeping it current, people retire, people come out of fellowships. How did you come up with the data mapping plan for where you would go scrape data, buy data, come up with your own data source? How did you think about that out of the gates? I didn't. Ian did. Uh, I thought about other stuff. I thought about who we're going to sell to. I thought about how we're going to market it, the brand, I thought about product. Ian's the data guy. Ian's been building data businesses for 25 years. He's amazing wow. at it also. So I didn't have to think about any of that. He's pulling this all together and he's managing a team of hundreds of people around the world, Hyderabad and in India and in China, the UK and the US. And he's doing, he's the data guy on the team, which is great. Now, has your experience building a distributed team? Is, is that the way forward? Oh, it's interesting because with our first, with Research Connection, we were a cult, like in all seriousness, we felt like a cult. It was upset. We, we bled research connection. With this one, it's a bit different. As we get bigger, it's a bit different also. I don't know. There's a lot of flexibility to this. And with, when COVID hit, no impact on productivity, really. So everyone already works from whenever they want to work. And they worked whenever. They work from wherever. Pretty nice doing this distributed model. For a software company, it's easy. For like a manufacturing company, I don't know how you do that. But for a yeah. software company, it's incredibly easy to do this type of distributed model. You would have the experience at Research Connection where selling it back to university is not always easy to maybe a lot of layers of decisions. When Ian's out building the data, actually the back end, the data part of the business, how did you know you wanted to go after pharma, biotech, health systems? I didn't, but I called every single one of them and learned about it. And then I realized who was easier to sell, who could I sell to basically. Pharma is the easiest to sell to, followed by biotech, followed by device, followed by med tech, followed by systems. And so we worked our way down the list. That makes sense. I mean, if you just look at the revenue that each of those types of customers generates, when you pitch them, and particularly, I love the fact it's great insight for entrepreneurs, calling the customer and understanding what their problems are and getting a sense of where you might help. Great exercise. I've made that mistake a number of times where I just fall in love with a solution. I'm just convinced I can sell it to the person I'm trying to help. <laughs> they don't always need it. What is the biggest unmet need for the pharmaceutical buyer? They want to understand the community that they're going to be treating. They want to understand the life of a provider that's going to be seeing patients with the disease that they're trying to cure. They want to understand the patient. They want to understand them to sell to them, but they, but they also, pharma's, like pharma does well. They get a lot of bad PR. It's becoming better now because of COVID, but they really want to understand who the healthcare professionals are that they should be engaging with and educate them why the product that they're developing is going to cure that disease, why it's best to use for their patients. And so if we could help them identify who those people are, help them keep up to date with it, help them get in contact with them, it's a huge value add. Who are the systems that they should be engaging with? What do the systems care about? Health systems, who are the providers? What do they care about? And we help them solve those problems. Makes sense. So organizationally, with your first sales call into a pharmaceutical company, which department are you targeting initially? Uh, anywhere from clinical development, medical affairs, and marketing, really across the board. 
And do you find that the clinical folks that might be investing and planning clinical trials for maybe they're going to commercialize a drug, is that kind of top of the funnel? Is that where they really want to understand the customer? They really want to understand them as they get closer to drug launch, like when they're like five years out, three years out, they care a lot about understanding the community and the customer. They care a lot about it up front. They care, they care a lot more. They care a lot about the science up front. Like, is this therapeutic? Is this molecule actually going to cure it? Is this device new and solving an unmet need that wasn't there before? As they're getting closer to launch, they care a lot about it because they're about to engage with 10,000 bladder cancer docs. They got to know about them. Got to know what they care about. I see. So through the R&D program, there's this promising drug. It's getting closer to be commercialized. Let's say it's five years out. And now they start to bring in the marketing team and how are they going to go to commercialize this drug successfully? And in this case of bladder cancer, for instance, what is a question that they're trying to answer? Tell me every single bladder cancer doctor in the world to start. We'll give them every single one of them. Tell me everything about them. What do they care about? Who are the thought leaders? Who are the people that are speaking at medical societies? Who are the social media people that could teach us about the community and educate the community? Who are the ones that we should engage on an advisory board for us that we could learn more about the community? What are they, what's the current treatment, like a first line of treatment? What's the standard of care? What do patients look like in terms of readmission rates? All this information about it. And so they get to understand the community so they could educate them about why they think their drug is better and how it, it makes standard of care and patients' lives better. So they, they try and learn everything about it, about them. It's amazing. If you like compare that to like maybe 20 years ago where a marketing team does a focus group of 20 yeah. of these types of doctors <laughs> and they ask a bunch of questions and like, all right, we got it all sorted out now. And now you get to use data where there's 15,000 bladder docs in the US and you get to know everything about the community, where they're located, who are the key people, how do they treat patients, what's important to the patients, what's important to the doctors, all that information. Makes total sense. And so revenue model wise, uh, is it a SaaS business? SaaS business, yeah. You, you buy seats to the platform, buy access. And did you do any experimentation early on with pricing? What do you call that model where it's a per seat basis versus maybe consumption? I don't even know what you call it. It's the best model ever because you grow with your clients. Like Zoom, if Zoom sells to a startup and the startup grows, they buy more Zoom seats. So like the same for Salesforce. When if you sell to a startup and the startup grows, you just buy more Salesforce seats. It's like a land and expand model that works really well. So if the, you sell to a pharma company and the pharma company grows, or they get acquired by a big pharma, it just grows. And so right. it's a great business model. And is there a moment in the onboarding of H1 where you've landed a new client? Is there some feature or step in the experience as a customer where they get the power of H1 and you can actually track that there's a low chance of churn if that moment happens? For us, it's, it's a few categories. It's high, u- high utility of the tool. So if they use it all the time. And then golden metric is if it increased in productivity. Are you able to engage with more healthcare professionals when you use H1? And are, is your, and are your engagements richer because you knew more about them? So like if I, you could skip the, let me learn about your problems type of discovery and jump right into, you know what their problems are potentially. Mm-hmm. So that type of richer engagement, uh, deeper engagement and being able to engage with more people is what we think about a lot. And so put it on a timeline for us. You start it in 2017, you bootstrap it with Ian. Yeah. How, how much in revenue did you build it to on, what did you guys put in between the two of you ballpark? In terms of uh, cash in Capital, or yeah. uh, um, Ian funded the most of it. We put in a few million bucks and we ended up generating a few million, bu- few million bucks in revenue. We started at really the beginning of 2018. So we started in November of okay. 2017. And so we did a few million, put in a few million, generated a few million bucks in revenue. And then we realized we could really grow this thing, create a multi-billion dollar company here. 
And it's like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. Let's, let's get some serious capital behind us and let's grow this thing. Like, uh, what else are we doing here besides growing a business, making an impact? So we decided to do that. Was it interesting, fun, difficult when you went out to raise VC? What was your experience like? It was a roller coaster. It was about a four-week fundraising process. From, That's fast. Is that fast? Four weeks? From first meeting to term sheet? Is that fast? Yeah. <laughs> You're just better at it than I am. But okay. I, it, in my world, that's pretty fast. Yeah, it was about four weeks. It was last week in January to last week in February. Wow. I probably did, I could tell you, but it was like about 30 meetings. I met with a lot of people in the Valley, in Boston, in the East Coast, New York. At the time I was in living in SF, got a few term sheets, met with really amazing people. Like so amazing people, some of these people. And we decided to, we love Menlo. Like we loved Menlo and we love Menlo. It's decided to go to Menlo Ventures. It's a great venture firm. They did like Uber, Series B, they Roku and Gilead, a couple other big, Warby Parker. Well, and you had the experience that you were part of the 2020 Y Combinator. Yeah, so we did Y Combinator before we fundraised. Would you do that again? Would you recommend it to other entrepreneurs? I mean, it's very exclusive. It's like getting into like the most elite college. Yeah, would I recommend it? I would do it again. They helped a lot with the fundraising. I mean, they accelerated the fundraising because of that. They made a lot of great intros, a lot of powerful intros. Uh, we would have raised without them, but they definitely helped. And I've, I met amazing people there. There's some unbelievable people that are in, in the program. So yeah, I would do it again. YC was a cool experience. I'm sensing some hesitation. Um, there's pros and cons to the thing. They take 7%, no matter the stage of your business. They took 7% yeah. of us and we had a few million bucks in revenue. They took 7% of some two people just graduating college that are 20 years old with an idea. And so it, it, there's our pros and cons to everything. I would do it again, just mostly because of the, the network, the acceleration of fundraising, the, the brand exposure. It's not, an, it wasn't, it's not an obvious choice, but I would do it again. I understand. Yeah. That, that's very honest. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, look, it's, you get access to some of the best investors in the world. In four weeks, you had 30 meetings with VCs and Menlo's one of the elite venture firms. And as you mentioned, funded some of the greatest companies. So now you're, you've raised was like $13 million in that re recent round that you announced. Yep. That's a lot of capital. And you know, you started, you had $3 million. When you closed the round, what was the run rate at that point? I don't share that, but in 2019, we grew 4X in revenue. We're going to grow the same in 2020, even with COVID. And probably wow. grow in multiples in 2021 as well. Um, so the business is doing well. In medical device, you know, they're these big strategics. And so small medical device companies, they grow also with venture. Sometimes they go public and become multi-billion dollar companies. But there's a very natural consolidation that just happens within the space. In a data business like H1 that is selling to some of the biggest companies in healthcare, who is the acquiring ecosystem for your type of business? Yeah, there's some like names that people, IQVIA would be a name that people know, or Symphony yeah. Health, or Clarivate Analytics, Viva, Decision Resources Group. Viva's the one that I was thinking about. Uh, Viva, yeah, Viva's, Viva bought Cross6 this year, which is a, like a marketing data business. Um, they're like a half a mile down the street from where my office okay. is right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they're, those are the big guys that you would think about. Um, IQVIA, Viva, got it. IQVIA, Viva are the big or the big mammoths in the industry. It sounds like you think this could be a much bigger business than that. Do you envision H1? Like, would you be happy if in 10 years from now, we're doing another conversation and you're the CEO, co-founder of H1 and you guys are doing hundreds of millions of sales or would you want to get on to the next thing? We want to create this thing to be huge, huge impact, massive impact. I'm sure your investors love to hear that as well. Yeah, we turn down acquisition offers. We just want to, we want to grow this thing. Like, like I don't know what I would do with the money either. 
Like I have in life. If you gave me X million dollars and I would just sit in the bank and I'm not here in my, living this life to just have money sit in the bank. I'd rather do what I want to do every day, which is this. Well, so that's a great question because the entrepreneurial's journey, it's, it's odd sometimes how we, we celebrate the success of a big financing and then an IPO or an acquisition. But at the end of it, your business is different. Sometimes you have different bosses. Sometimes you're not there anymore as the founder. And, but in re- exchange for all your efforts, you have this like lump of money. <laughs> which can be profound and you can do all sorts of great things. It sounds like for you, you would sit in the bank, but what do you do for fun when you're not building H1? And what kind of extravagances do you afford yourself for all your hard work? My type of extravagance is like rollerblading for like five miles or 10 miles, or like walking with dogs in the park. My brakes fall in like, oh, I rollerblade now there's a shelter in place so I could rollerblade. I don't go on city bikes. Now there's X, I don't trust them. So I'd rollerblade around the park or something. I would spend time with my wife, spend time with the dogs, read, and that's pretty much it. My level of fun these days. Well, that's great because if you don't have that motivation where it's all about money, you can build for the long term. Yeah, exactly. So I wish I was included in that round. Maybe next time. (laughs) Maybe next time. Well, hey, good. So the final part of the interview is we're going to go to the vault. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. We'll keep it moving pretty quickly. The first one, since you're such an avid reader, what is a book you've read in the last year that really made you think had a profound impact on how you view the world or your business and is something that you think is worth sharing with the audience? In the last year, I, I finished a five-part series on LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the, the president, the guy who was the mm-hmm. VP of JFK. Uh, it was a crazy book. It's like 5,000 pages about this guy. It's, I, like, I, I'm always curious, like, how does someone become the president of the United States and you think, oh, they must be perfect? The guy had so many failures, like you wouldn't believe, like more than we could count but he just kept putting himself out there. The ambition was like burning fire within him. And it was like great to see stories of great people fail and then pick themselves back up. And the failure didn't matter. Those are a good story to read, good life story to read. Next question, other than your parents, who in your life saw your potential or really was supportive and has been a mentor to you throughout your education, research connection, and now H1? My wife, she supports me no matter what, even if I have crazy ideas and like, this is, she's amazing. My friends support me too. That was always nice. I mentioned it. Like I have the same friends forever and they just support me and they like me even if I fail or if I succeed. And that's like a nice thing to know that like there's still people in your life that they don't care if you're a billionaire and they don't care if you're worth nothing. I made no money my first few years out of college and they didn't really care. I'm still the same person to them. So that's really nice to know that no matter what, you could succeed or fail. You can miss a shot or hit the shot. People still there support you. So that was really nice. All right. Next question. In your work at H1, what's one software tool that you use almost every day that you haven't developed yourself that you can't imagine working without? Slack. Love Slack. It's easy to use and I'm on it 24-7 and it tracks all the conversations, which I like. Do you find that you email less because of Slack? I emailed, I pretty much only just email clients. All right. Well, last question. In your role at H1, what is one unmet need that you're facing almost every day and that you think somebody should build something to solve? Recruiting. It's impossible. It's like the most impossible task that I have. Yeah. I mean, like it's recruiting is speed dating and you hope that you pick the right person. You have no idea if you do, and it's an expensive mistake. Uh, It's more expensive than going on a date where you spend $100. You're spending a lot more than $100 to make a bad hire. So (laughs) I wish someone could fix it. No one's fixed it, even though it's such a big market and such a big problem. No one's fixed recruiting. All right, folks. Well, you heard it here. Ariel just finished a five-part series on LBJ. His friends from childhood and his wife have his back no matter what. Can't imagine working without Slack and the problem that needs to be solved is recruiting. Well, Ariel, I really appreciated the time. Thanks for being a guest on Unmet Need. Appreciate it too. Thank you.